Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Josh Barron. Josh, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And we'll give kind of a brief background, but we're going to get a lot more depth into your story. But Josh is a partner and co-founder of Banyan Global Family Business Advisors. He's a visiting lecturer at Harvard Business School and a co-author of Harvard Business Review's Family Business Handbook, which we are going to spend a lot of time on. I really like your intro into this specific article about building a family business that lasts because, you know, I think the media portrays families as in succession or billions as these kind of cauldrons of drama. And and oftentimes they are, but yeah. The flip side is, you know, I was at a family office conference two weeks ago and the Brown Foreman family out of Louisville presented. Sure. And they've been making this happen for 150 years with a lot of success over yeah. multiple generations, 175 plus family members. So you're the expert in the field. Like, where is the truth there? Is it just somewhere in the middle? It's a great question. I, I do think like most things, the truth, actually, in some ways, I think the truth is actually not in the middle. The truth is actually at, at either extreme. And I was talking to one person about this and he said, you know, family businesses are never neutral. They're either really good or really bad. And, and that's kind of the nature of it is that over the long term, either you figure out how to make the you know family dynamics and the business successful, and you have this really amazing a reinforcing loop that creates success stories like the Brown Foreman family, or you have the opposite where you have 
the family dynamics are reinforced by the, you know, the business you know, being successful and vice versa. And you have these like either stagnating or failing businesses that also create real, real family drama. So I, I think the reality is, is, is that there are both out there in the world. And the real question is sort of like, what's the distribution? And it'd be great to know an answer to that. But most of these companies are actually private and they like it that way. They don't really necessarily want to tell all their stories. And so unfortunately, I do think that at least from my own experience, I've, I've had the pleasure to get to know, you know, several hundred family businesses between, you know, my client work and teaching and, and conferences and so on. I, I think that there's a, a significant majority that are more like the Brown Foreman example, where it's not perfect, but there's a lot of good stuff going on. It's just that those aren't stories aren't so relevant or, or I guess so entertaining. Uh, they don't really make for great copy in the Wall Street Journal. They don't really make for great, you know, stories on Netflix or whoever about the Sackler family and, and these kinds of things. So those are the ones that we tend to focus our attention on in the media. I just don't think that's the norm for, for most families out there. Yeah. Interesting data point. Brown Foreman is the fifth oldest publicly traded, privately controlled business in America. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and that's, there's a whole, it's an interesting thing. There, there is a whole category of companies out there that are, you know, publicly traded and either family or founder controlled. And it's, it's a, it's a big number. I think it's something like a third of the S and P 500 kind of fit into that category. And it's, and it's the ones that, you know, like Brown Foreman, Molson Coors, you know, kind of companies like that. But also a lot of the newer companies, like, you know, whether it's Facebook, Meta, Google Alphabet, like those are also, even though they're not family businesses, the con- even the, the control is concentrated in one person or a few people. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to those companies as those founders, you know, get older and decide what to do with their, with their control. So there is actually this whole category of companies out there that have, you know, this hybrid nature between being sort of family controlled, but publicly traded. Yeah, the class A, class B split. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 10, 20 years as these founders cycle out like Bezos has. So a question for you, nature versus nurture. Is it possible for a family business that has DNA that might be conflicting or might be controversial or might have issues? Is it is it possible to kind of write that ship midstream? Or will you always just kind of revert to what that base DNA is based on kind of the origination of the company itself? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's not when you, I think when you mean DNA, you mean like, is it sort of been through the structure you've created something? Because I don't think this is genetic overall in a sense, but, but certainly there are some structures that are really have been set up to position families to do well and others that position them to be in a position of, it, you know, arguing all the time and getting, you know, sort of setting them up to fail in a sense. And look, I think in general, the thing that makes family businesses different in both ways that can be both positive and negative is that they can write within reason, they can write their own rules, right? And you can, you know, because if you can, if you can make your rules, that means you can break your rules, right? And that's the weakness of a family business is that if you, if you can't agree on something, whether it's a, you know, about who gets what job or who gets compensated how much or how much to take out of the business. No one else is going to solve that problem for you. Like there's no 
super, you know, board of directors in the sky or whatever that's going to come in and sort of say, no, you're right, you're wrong. If you have, you know, four siblings who own at 25% each and they can't agree, like, you know, you're stuck until you can't, you know, or, or until you get the courts involved. And that's, that's sort of a lose-lose all around. On the flip side of that, though, is because you have that ability to rewrite the rules, you can make them and recreate them in a way that positions the family to to do things differently. And I've seen lots of examples where families have come to the conclusion that the way that they're running things may have been really successful for a generation or a period of time and worked brilliantly in one context, but was positioning them or making them or putting them in, in a place where they were at odds and they really needed to to undo that. You know, the story about that is a family that that I got to know really well. And there were two brothers that took this business that their father had created relatively small and made it very successful. And they, you know, did everything together. It was very close. And, and you know, the, their their family mantra, the brother's mantra was 50-50, like everything is equal. Everything is the same. And then, of course, the first mistake they they, they made was that one of them had four children, the other had three. So like our perfect 50-50 balance is out of whack. But then there, as, you know, as naturally would happen within that generation, there were real differences. You know, some had children, others didn't. Some relied on the, the dividends of the, of the business and others didn't. But they had this structure, the brother, the two brothers had put together the structure that locked everything together into a single trust. They had to make all their decisions together. And it was a nightmare. But because they had the power to undo and change things, they were able to create some level of separation so that they could each kind of do some version of their own thing. So that's what I mean. I think, you know, sometimes things are locked up in trust. There's not so much you can do. There's some restrictions on that, but there's some really creative estate planning attorneys out there. And in general, you can actually construct a different reality if the one that you have is not working so well for you. As I mentioned in the intro, you have a very comprehensive, deep background in this space. And you, you did this excellent article about the five core rights that accompany family ownership. And it's these distinct areas that when combined can lead to kind of multi-generational success. I'd love for you to maybe tell the Genesis story behind the article. And yeah. we can get into some of the specifics, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about the background and what brought you to focus on that area. Yeah, well, the... The article is really a summary of a, of a book that my uh, co-author Rob and I did, and it was really trying to distill, you know, a couple hundred pages into, you know, something that people could more easily digest. But the, the genesis, I would say, of the broader idea really comes from the, the work that we've been doing over the last, you know, 10, 12 years with families all around the world and, and really coming to the conclusion that what what's really affecting shaping the success of family companies over the long term is this idea of ownership and i think ownership is the most important least discussed idea in business and the reason for that is that the way that we tend to look at companies is through the lens of a widely held public company like apple or I mean, google's a little different because the control is is concentrated but as a if I'm an, if I own shares in any of these companies, like it doesn't really mean very much. I can't, I can't do much with it. You know, I can go to an annual meeting. I can sign a proxy statement to elect the board. I've never done any, either of those things for any of the companies that I've, you know, invested my, 
my money into. What I'm really trying to do ultimately is is to be an investor. I'm trying to to, to buy low and and sell high is sort of the objective. But when we're talking about a private company, one where the owners are actually related to each other, they all know each other. They can all get in a room, even if there's 200 of them. They can all you know you know start to have these conversations and. You know, instead of being investors in like thousands of companies, they're like invested in this one. Like it might be that 80, 90% of my wealth is wrapped up into this particular business. When you have that level of, of ownership present, um, that's when we start to sort of understand and think about it in a very different way. And, and I actually find it really helpful to sort of to reorient people by sort of think about something that you own, like your car or your house. What does it mean to own it? Well, at the end of the day, what it means to own something is that you have the right to do things that no one else can do unless you give them permission. Those can be very sort of mundane things like, you know, what color to paint the house or big things like, should we keep it or sell it? Or can the in-laws visit next week or, you know, not like you have the ability to make all these kinds of choices as the owner of that, of that asset. And that's really when we could bring our, bring our lens back to family businesses. That's really what we, we're talking about when we talk about this, these rights of ownership, that as the owners, the collective owners of the business, you have the right to do all these different things. And through those rights and the, way, and the choices you make implicitly and explicitly about these different topics, that's how you shape the, you know, almost everything about not just the business, but also about the family. Actually, one of the classes I was teaching a couple of years ago I had someone from the DuPont family come and speak. And he, and he said, you know, there are over 4,000 living members of the DuPont family. And then he paused for a fact. He's good at this. He'd done it before. And he said, you know, there are 4,000 living members of any family. It's just that we have a reason to know who they are, right? And so by shaping the, the future of the, you know, the business, in many ways, you also are going to shape the future of the family. And I'm curious, based on your teaching experience, I know you were at Columbia and Harvard. Have you seen uptick in interest in this space in particular? It's a good question. I think, you know, at Columbia, we had, we sort of had a very well developed set of classes and it was a great privilege to be able to teach there. And at, at HBS, I'm joining a great group and, and, and we're also seeing an acceleration there. I, I think it's sort of, you know, it sometimes goes in, maybe goes in waves. I think family business, you know, as a topic didn't really exist maybe 30 years ago. And then there was an initial flurry and I think it maybe kind of, you know, flattened out a little bit. And now it does seem to be accelerating. There does seem to be, you know, more attention. What's interesting is actually a lot of the attention is now on family offices because that's something that, you know, didn't, you know, that's speaking of not existing. I don't even think that was a term people used probably 20, 25 years ago. And now they're everywhere. Like, you know, they're, they're in all parts of the, you know, the investment economy. Now, I remember the show Billions, like actually they talked about going to from a, you know, private equity fund to a family office. Like they're, they're kind of everywhere. And, and I think that that's in some ways driving a lot of the recent attention is trying to, you know, as, as there have been a lot of liquidity events for families that have sold to private equity or or taken their company public or whatever, they've been interested in sort of creating these family offices. And there's just been an explosion of interest and attention in those, I would say, especially over the last you know three to five years. Yeah. I mean, family offices have really become their own asset class and own industry on a standalone basis. And it is interesting to see some of these older family business programs that have been around yeah. for a long time 
almost like spin out family office focused curriculum or programs that are adjacent. But there are a lot of big differences between having an operating company multi-generationally versus being a purely financial family and and similarities, obviously. There are actually, my my co-author Rob and I just had a piece come out, I think it was this week, that was looking at this question of sort of like, how do you how do you build a family office that lasts? And, you know, we, you know, in the last three to five years, our work has, it used to be, we all only worked really with family operating companies. And then in the last three to five years, a big chunk of our practice has been in, in these families that either sold a family business and became sort of an, more of an investment vehicle or where it actually never had a family business, but it was, you know, someone who accumulated wealth and then created sort of a, a family you know, a family office or something like that from, you know, from, from that event. And they are, you know, as you said, they're exactly right. There are some really important similarities. A lot of the things that we talk about in the article and the book are, are still relevant, but there's a twist on them. There's some things that are both make, make a family office easier to sustain over the long term. There's more flexibility, but there's also some fundamental questions about, do you actually need a family office to, to do the core you know, job of managing your wealth that can be existential. And if you don't sort of address that why and make the case for it, it's pretty easy to to take a part of family office, bring your money to investment manager of your choice or multifamily office of your choice and get something, you know, of a similar, similar impact. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest question within the family office space today is as this first generation wealth creation generation moves on, right? The baby boomers are sunsetting inheritance and transitions are happening within leadership positions. And this question of why we are together, if it's just around a corpus of assets, if there's no longer a story like the DuPonts have, I just think it's very challenging unless you're very intentional about building culture, building shared experiences. And and again, I really like your question because what I challenge a lot of people who think about starting a family office is is it just an ego trip so you can go around and do conferences and tell people you have one of these things right. or actually right. have intentionality of a multi-generational time horizon for this corpus of assets? Well, I think that the, that's the, exactly the right word. I think that intentionality has to be there. And, you know, look, a business has a natural center of gravity to it, right? I mean, it it's sort of like there's employees, there's facilities, there's you make money. There's a natural place to reinv- you know, you put it back in. You grow it. You see the impact. You go and experience it. It has something that kind of draws you in. And you know, I think a family office can, in some ways, be a pile of spreadsheets. Right? It's a bunch of investments and in, in things that might not have on their nature much meaning to the people that are part of it. And so, it doesn't mean that it's not. They can't be incredibly valuable. There are some amazing family offices, and there's. Families that have been at this for generations as well, you know, in terms of having really more of an investment platform than, you know, than the sort of operating company approach. But you've got to be, you've got to be intentional and thoughtful about what's the why? Like, you know, why are we doing this? And if you, if your only argument is that, you know, we can earn you X percent, you know, return, you, you've got to be ready for someone else to come in and say, well, I can get you that. And by the way, you're not going to have to go talk to your siblings about investments anymore or, or sort of have to go to these family meetings with your cousins. You can just work with me and then we're, we're all done here, right? You don't need to do any of that nonsense. So it's got to have a real something beyond just the financial argument for it to be something that, that sustained itself. Yeah, I think what we're going to see trend-wise is this dissolution of a lot of these family offices that were created by a first-generation member when the inheritance happens or when the estate plan triggers 
I think you'll see a lot of them split apart and go their own separate ways, which is not necessarily an unhealthy thing, but no. I, I do think it, that's what you're going to see trend-wise moving forward. I wouldn't be surprised. I think partly the reason why, you know, we wrote this article, we do this work is that, you know, I think just like there are good and bad reasons to sell a, a family business, I think sometimes a sale is exactly the right solution. And other times you look at it and you say, well, that probably could have, there probably was a better outcome that, you know, if you'd done some work there. I think the same thing is true with these family offices that have been created. For some of them, the healthy thing is to just to separate it out. Like there isn't really a compelling purpose for for holding that together and and it's more effort than it's worth and all that kind of stuff, you know, but I do think there are some that will fail, you know, for not having done, asked the right questions and done the right work. And, you know, you, you, I've seen so many of these, you know, a number of family offices where it is that sort of founder who creates it in their own image without necessarily thinking about, you know, where is this going? And you talk to the next generation, they're saying, well, that's great that that's what mom and dad want to do. But as soon as they're gone, we're breaking this thing apart. And they're missing that sort of intergenerational aspect and conversation of it. It doesn't mean that, you know, the parents should just give up control and so on to their, to their children. But if you're not sort of building it on a, if you're not having that cross-generational dialogue and, and building it for the future, don't be surprised if it doesn't have one. So because you straddle both these worlds, which I didn't fully appreciate until we got into this conversation, which is great. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. Are you seeing family businesses with operating companies start bolt on family offices and and like what yeah. are the dynamics there are you seeing it working are they not working is it kind of a the work in progress for a lot of these folks yeah so it's a great question almost every family business has a family office um, whether they call it that or not and the way that it typically starts you know kind of classic you know business success you know, you've got this company, it creates both corporate tax issues and personal tax issues. And especially if, if you're like most family businesses, you're an S corp or an LLC and therefore corporate taxes are personal taxes. Like there isn't a separation. And so what oftentimes happens is that if within the accounting department, you know, of a company are people that are doing, you know, personal tax returns, right? And then they, then they do other services. They, you know, help out with, you know, buying cars or helping out with financing homes. And so they're, they're very often, especially in that first to second generation, there are these things that are kind of family office, usually services, not so much necessarily outside investments, because most of the money is often being put back in that, you know, you could think of as a family office. It's just not called that. It's just sort of like part of the finance or accounting department or, you know, the, the, the person, the, the executive assistants, the personal assistant also kind of thing. And then, you know, if the family is successful, it has liquidity, then they're like starting to figure out, well, how do we invest it? And sometimes again, it's, I've seen it's where the, the treasury department of the company is also the one investing the, the owner's private capital, right? So they often are, or we can think of as these embedded family offices is typically how family companies start their family office journey. And then usually they reach a point, often it's in that second to third generation moment where it becomes clear that 
it's important to actually pop the family office out of the company. And usually that's done for a mix of both privacy reasons. So let's imagine that I'm an owner of a company, but I don't work there. And all of a sudden, you know, these company employees that I don't really know have access to my most private personal information, or maybe I am an employee of the business. Do I really want someone in the company to know all of what I'm worth, right? So these privacy reasons, there's also fairness issues where I might be using, a, you know, getting a ton of benefit from the family office, but someone else, one of my cousins is not really getting anything from it, but it's all coming out of the company's P&L. So we're paying equally for it, right? So, uh, you know, or we just need more expertise, you know, like we have, we have our personal, we have our corporate accountant doing personal tax returns. And we're like, this person can't possibly be the best out there at both. So for some combination of those reasons, there's often a process by which that family office will, will sort of, you know, be spun out and become a little bit more of its own sort of institution, have its own staff and team, sometimes still paid by the, you know, under the same umbrella, but it starts to sort of have its separation. And then usually the further on you get, the more it starts to differentiate itself and the more functions it takes on. And that could be everything from, you know, those core services, where it's where it often starts to that investing platform that can often get quite sophisticated doing real estate and, you know, private equity outside the company and all that kind of stuff. And then increasingly, we're seeing family offices take on the governance function. I mean, if you think about, the, I think the best parallel I can I can think of is it's, a, it's like the shareholder relations division of a large corporation. Some family offices, you know, I know some family offices for large large family businesses, they do very little investing, but what they're doing is they're managing all the family meetings. That you know, they're helping to get all these documents signed. They they have this really kind of shareholder relations engagement communication. Kind of function. So, short answer to your you know, long, short answer to my long answer. Absolutely, I think there's been a big increase in the the degree and extent to which families are realizing the value of you know formalizing and extending this kind of the, this kind of family office services. It's just not always so singularly focused on investments. Like if you've had that major liquidity event. Yeah, I, I agree with your sentiment that it's very likely that. There was a family office functionality within the enterprise on some level. They just didn't know what to call it. And now that there's an industry around it, they now have a name to, to tag. And so that's what right. they're utilizing now. Role to hire. And like, you know what I mean? Like you, if you're out in the market now, you can, oh, I need a family office director, right? I mean, that's right. a thing that now exists. People have that. On, you can find those resumes and, and sort of kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they're competing directly with investment banking, venture capital, tech, young talent, many people want, are gravitating towards that long-term permanent capital, flexible capital structure. And so I think it's it's burgeoning. You alluded to the second, third generation is oftentimes the catalyst to, to popping out this family office. The old bromide of shirt sleeves or shirt sleeves. I know you've written about this. Yeah. Do you think it's, do you think it's myth or do you think it's real? Well, look, I, if you just look numerically and you took a hundred family businesses and said, how many of those are going to still be controlled by a family after three generations? And the stats, you know, would say it's something like 12 to 15. I'm not arguing that that's the case. I think the, 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 the problems with that are when people say that, what they imply are two things. One is that family businesses are more fragile, that they're somehow built to fail as opposed to built to last. And the second thing is that there's something wrong with that second or third generation that causes them to fail. And that's where I think those two things are nonsense. If you look around, you know, all the available evidence we have on corporate longevity suggests that family businesses last longer. 
than non-family businesses. And really what that data, that 100 to 12 is telling you is that making a company last for 90 to 100 years or longer is really hard. And we that's just we know that, right? I mean, any company, look at the survival rate of startups or you know restaurants or whatever. It's just busy, having businesses last over that long of time period is just really really hard for all kinds of different reasons. So there is, you know what we know about longevity, if you look around the world at the longest lasting businesses, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, the vast, vast majority of those are family companies. So there's nothing inherently built into family businesses that makes them prone to failure. And in fact, um, you know, from everything we can tell, I think the opposite is true, that families are actually able to build businesses that can weather you know, all kinds of, of, of storms. The other sort of piece of this is the you know, the, it, the third generation is the problem. And that's not what the data tells us at all. All they did was to do this analysis is they take, you know, these companies, break them into periods and say, okay, X number failed in the third generation versus the second generation or the fourth. It's not saying that something is wrong with those, those generations. And, and my teaching sort of experience, especially in the MBA program, almost inevitably I'd have a student on the first day of class, everyone's introducing themselves. They'd say like, my name is so-and-so. You know, I come from this family. I'm from the third generation. I'm the one who's going to screw it up. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like that's not actually the case. And we we tend to tell these stories of founders as if it's the founder who builds the business, and then the second generations kind of rests on their laurels. The third generation's a bunch of lazy bums. In reality, many many success stories are not at all like that. The success the the story goes something like the first generation developed something from scratch that was comparatively small. And then some second, third, fourth, whatever generation entrepreneur came along and turned that into an amazing company, or it was built in sort of a cumulative way, generation after generation, not in this sort of like founder and then everyone else is a worthless bump. So I, I really, that, those are the parts, where the, the mythology around it, where I think that it's, it's really unhelpful to people because it, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy or it becomes an impediment to even trying to do the work. The one, the one place where I'll say definitively, I think there is, it is a misnomer. This notion of shirt sleeves is shirt sleeves in three generations. The idea that if you're, if you accumulate wealth, that your grandchildren will be destitute is completely unsupported by all of the evidence that we have available. It wealth just does, yeah, we can, we can find those stories, but wealth just does not dissipate anywhere near that quickly. Yeah. I always push back on that sentiment for exactly the reasons you listed. <laughs> Running any kind of company over multiple generations is challenging. Yeah. Then throw in the family dynamics, then throw in estate tax, political volatility, yeah. changes in technology and industry. I mean, if you look at the S&P or the NASDAQ and the turnover that they have annually, I mean, it's, you know, General Electric comes and goes, right? I yeah. mean, Kodak comes and goes and the rest of these companies that we talk about today is that they're going to last forever are going to come and go. So, it even, it actually reinforces when I find a family that's five, six generations, it's remarkable to me that they yeah. haven't managed to like, even to, they keep the business on the rails and they've managed not to kill them each other, like over Thanksgiving dinners. It's very impressive to me. Well, but, and I think, yes. And I think that's true for any business, right? I mean, if you, if you think about a public company that's been around for that long, it's not that common. It just because it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, to stay at the top of the heap for for a long period of time. Most of those companies, 
you know, the, a lot of the ones that have come and gone, they've, they've merged, they've gone out of business, the Kodaks of the world, or they've been absorbed by someone else. They've, they're not there anymore. And that's my point is that, yes, we can talk about the fact that most family businesses won't make it, but let's just, let's just change out the family, you know, X out the family part. Most businesses are not going to make it for a hundred years. That's just, that's just the reality of business. So this is a good segue into another topic I wanted to get into that you've written about this concept of conflict. I think oftentimes in our minds, we think of the conflict as inherently bad, yeah. especially when it comes to families. But, and this is reminding me of what I'm hearing now during a recession, coming recession, typically the best time to invest in venture capital or startups because good ideas come from difficult moments. Where is that balance between like the right amount of conflict to create a catalyst, to create interesting, fun things, but not be destructive of value. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really important, really important topic because I think there is this aversion to conflict, especially in families, because we're taught from a, a young age, you know, your family's most important. You can, should never, don't ruin Thanksgiving. And so there's this real tendency to avoid, to sweep things under the rug. And you know, I, I, I teach it in a class called Managing Conflict in Family Business. And one of the things that we do in the class is the students actually, I ask them to, to list out, you know, what, what, are, what are the impacts of having too much conflict on the business and on the family relationships and dynamics. And then we do the same thing for too will conflict, you know, for avoiding issues. We know there are issues that are there, they're tense. We're just sweeping them under the rug. And the conclusion they come to is that the impacts are actually exactly the same. The businesses can't innovate, they can't grow, they can't make good decisions, both when there's too much conflict and too little conflict. And the same thing is true you know, on, on the family side, that we can't have authentic, real relationships, either if we're fighting all the time, or if we're walking on eggshells and trying to be something we're not, or you know, just avoid issues all the time. And so that's why I talk about like this idea of a Goldilocks zone, you know, like there's the fairy tale, too much, too big, just right. But I like to think about it the way that astronomers talk about, you know, the earth and the solar system is that if the earth was much closer to the sun, it would be too hot. Think about that, like too much conflict, right? And then if the earth was much further away from the sun, it would be too cold. It would lack the vitality. It would, you know, too little conflict. And so what we're looking for in a family business environment is, you know, how do we find that, that place in the middle where it's not that we're, you know, fighting all the time, but also that we're not ignoring issues. And, you know, most families, as we kind of talked about before, the, the perception of family business is that most of them have to learn how to get out of the cycle of fighting each other all the time. Those are the stories we tell. Those are the dramas of succession and Yellowstone, Dynasty, Dallas, like on and on and on. The reality of most families is for the reason I said that we're programmed from birth to get along is, is dealing with this sort of, of really learning how to disagree of sort of getting away from this, you know, fake harmony, this false sense that everything is fine and perfect and actually getting into and learning how to have those difficult conversations that are necessary for not just the business, but for the, for the family to retain the vitality it needs. So as we wrap the conversation, which has been terrific, by the way, thank you. We'll have to do another yeah, one. Sure. We didn't get into half the stuff I wanted to, but <laughs> I'm, delighted. I'm curious, you know, we're entering into a phase of incredible market volatility, geopolitical yeah. instability. Yeah. Meanwhile, there is this demographic shift occurring. I think it was talked about for a long time. I, mean, I think it's actually happening now, leadership change. 
what are you seeing and feeling from your students, from your network? Like what's top of mind for them? What's keeping them up at night? What's, what's the most like interesting things that you're hearing from your yeah. these days? Yeah. It's, it I mean, one thing that's going back to what you said before about, you know, in some ways the down markets are the best time to invest. One of the things that I've seen in families, the family businesses that have been around for a while is there's almost like a, no one likes a downturn, but there, there's a lot less fear about those because first of all, they tend to have much more conservative balance sheets. They're less, you know, less levered up so they can survive some of these changes. But they also, many family businesses have been through any number of recessions and downturns and all that kind of stuff. And and they actually can tell, talk about how those were times when they expanded the business because assets were cheap and they had cash. And like it was, these were times when it was actually, you know, yes, you know, tighten, tighten the belt buckle and, and uh, cut costs when you need to and so on. But, but really think about this as a time of growth and expansion. And so, you know, some of the folks I talk to, you know, see or are looking at this period, of course, is the instability. No one, as I said, no one wants a recession, but it, but it can be a real opportunity if you position yourself to be in the in the right place. So I think that sort of like that's it's a slightly different take on some of those issues, maybe a little bit less fear and more sense of opportunity that a lot of companies that I talk to that are sort of going into this into this time period. But then I think, you know, in some ways, you know, everything, you know, everything stays the same. A lot of the concerns are still about how do I handle the transition from my my mom or dad to me? Or how do I make sure I don't ruin my my children by giving them too much money? A lot of those concerns I don't really think have changed that much. They're they're much more similar and continuous than than there being a big difference. So uh, last question. Since you've had all these compelling conversations with family business owners, people in the family office community, have you incorporated any of the learnings in your own personal life, how you operate? Your could be your family household. It could be your finances. I'm curious if you've taken any of these yeah. lessons and applied them to yourself. <laughs> That's a great question. I think one thing that I really like about my job is that really, in some ways, what I'm what I'm learning about all the time is how to be better at my own my own job, my most important job, which is as a husband and father to my ten year old twins. And I, I wish I had gotten more financial lessons. That's the part that I probably uh, haven't benefited from from that much. And in part, that's because the, the main lesson that comes from working with families is is patience and investing over the long term. Like they're for the most part, you know, unless you just you get lightning in the bottle, success is the result of doing the right thing year in year out, not from cutting any corners. So, like you know, that's 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 not so helpful in the short term, but. But absolutely, in terms of you know being a better parent, you know learning, you know thinking about what kind of things am I trying to instill my children? How am I teaching them how to manage conflict? And you know, I I actually you know take some of the lessons of things I teach and I try to put them directly into into parenting. Like I don't I don't resolve conflicts between my my kids. I really you know want them to learn how to do that themselves, and I try to create an environment to get them on the same side as much as possible as opposed to being too oppositional. So there's lots of examples of things like that where I feel like it's been a real benefit to me as a as a person and in, in, in those most important roles that I have. It's great stuff. Josh, I want to thank you for coming on. And like I said, I definitely encourage people to check out the website. You've, you've got some great writings on there and terrific content. If people are interested in connecting with you about the work you're doing at HBS, 
or at the firm, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, I mean, the, by email is always, is always great. I'm josh at banyan.global or jbaron at hbs.edu or on LinkedIn. Probably is an as easy way as ever to these days to connect. And, and I'm always delighted to hear from people, to have conversations, to hear their stories. That's one of the great things about this job is I feel like I'm, even after having done it for you know, 12, 13 years, I'm still learning every day. And that's really what, what keeps me energized about it. Yeah, we connected on LinkedIn, so definitely reach out to Josh. He's a good, <laughs> he's go. a good, it he's, works. He's a good, yeah, it, it does works. work. It's a, a blind note on LinkedIn and a good follow too. So Josh, I thank you for the time. Best of luck with everything moving forward. And uh, like I said, I'd love to do a follow-up in six or 12 months and figure out what else you're working on. I'd be delighted. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 